We're talking about family. We're halfway through a new series or halfway through the series about family. And as I think about the groups of people, the individuals that make up this congregation, uh, one thing we have in common is that we all come from a family. We all have a family, but one way we're dissimilar is that our families are different. Some of you may come from big families and have big families, and some of you may have smaller families. Some of you may have lots of immediate family and lots of people living in your home, and some of you may just have extended family. Uh, Some of you may come from families and live in homes that are quite broken, and others may live in homes and be parts of families that are quite whole. But regardless of what your family looks like, regardless of how many people make up your family and what's happened in your family's history, here's what we're talking about this month, that we as Christian peoples need to be committed to our families. We need to be committed to our families, and and here's the key, we need to be committed to our families as a response to God's commitment to us. See, that's what we're saying. That's what we're saying all year long, that God's commitment to us, and and he is a remarkably committed God, isn't he? Amen? That, That this God was so committed to his people Israel, and to keeping his promises to Abraham's descendants, that through Abraham's descendants, God was going to bless all nations of mankind, that he was so committed to that, in spite of humanity's sin and rebellion, in spite of you and me, and in spite of the way we've all acted, God was committed through it all. And his commitment has resulted in your salvation. His commitment has resulted in our salvation. His commitment has resulted in us being a part of Abraham's family. His commitment changes us. That we respond to his commitment with commitment of our own. And that part of that commitment is lived out in our families. That the gospel changes the way that we live out our lives. See, because this is just part of Christianity, right? In fact, this is a small part of Christianity coming together on Sundays and it's great and wonderful and we love the singing and we love taking the Lord's Supper and remembering what Jesus has done for us. But this, this one hour a week or two or three hours a week, this is a small part of Christianity, That Christianity is lived out on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. It's lived out in the workplace and it's lived out at school and it's lived out at home. It's lived out in the way that we deal with our families. See, because we're saying to them, I'm committed to you because God is committed to me. God's commitment to me changes the way I'm committed to you. And so we commit ourselves to our families in spite of their brokenness and in spite of our brokenness and in spite of the brokenness of the world, we commit ourselves to our families. And this morning we're going to talk about marriage and we're going to talk about what that looks like in marriage and we're going to talk about why 
why God's rules about marriage are important. And maybe you, you read that uh, scripture reading along with us in Matthew 19, and you kind of rolled your eyes, and oh, great, he's going to talk about marriage and divorce. That'll be a fun sermon, right? You know, we kind of roll our eyes, and as we kind of go through this, we're going to look at God's rules, and, and, and you might be thinking, Wes, you're, you're kind of taking all the fun out of marriage, and you make it sound like it's not very romantic, and you, we'll talk about, the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about what marriage should look like in our homes, and how husbands and wives should treat each other. And hey, I like romance. I, I like marriage. I love my wife. I love being married. I, I've seen a Nicholas Sparks movie or two, you know. I, I didn't read the books, but I saw a couple of the movies. You know, I've seen the notebook. So I mean, I, I like I like romance, and then that's good. And, and that should be a part of marriage. And our personal enjoyment and happiness is, is a part of marriage. But But here's the thing, church. Here's the thing. That in 21st century America, not just in America, but in the first world countries of the world, in the 21st century, we've, we've developed this way of thinking about marriage that I think is very different than civilized people have typically thought about marriage. You see, we typically think that marriage is exclusively about or primarily about our own personal happiness. That that's what marriage is about. That marriage is about, I want to be happy, and they want to be happy, and so as long as I can find somebody that makes me happy, I should be able to marry whomever I want, and if I'm not happy anymore, I should be able to, to leave. You see, that's what we've begun to think about marriage, but that's not the way that most people throughout the civilized world for history, back to ancient Egypt and Babylon and Mesopotamia and Israel, They've all realized that marriage is that. It is that. It is our personal happiness, but it's more than that. See, because marriage touches and affects so many other things. Money, property, safety, security, children and family. See, marriage is about your happiness, and yeah, that's a part of it. But really, in the grand scheme of things, that's kind of a small part of it. That it's also about protecting the vulnerable, taking care of each other, and making sure that people have a roof over their head, and making sure that people have food to eat and clothes to wear. It's about undying commitment to each other. And that's why rules and laws have always existed around marriage in every civilization. Again, back to ancient Egypt and Babylon and Mesopotamia and Israel, all of these rules existed because marriage affects more than just your own personal happiness. Questions like, who is and isn't married? Who is really a part of the family unit? How do we define that and decide that? What if somebody dies in the family? What if one of the spouses die? What if someone leaves? Or what if somebody wants out of the marriage? Who owns what? You know, in a lot of countries still to this day, when they get married, the bride brings a dowry to the marriage and the husband maybe even gives a bride price to the bride's family. And so what happens if the marriage dissolves? Who gets what and who owns what and what belongs to who? And who takes care of the kids? Whose responsibility or privilege does that belong to? What kind of behavior will we tolerate? What kind of behavior will we punish? In every civilization that has, that I know of throughout history, these kinds of questions are answered by laws. And there are structures and boundaries around these things to protect people. And that's what I want us to explore this morning. 
that God gave rules and structure and boundaries and laws to his people, not because God is mean. Sometimes when we read God's rules, we think, well, you're just so mean, God. Why why you tell us that? You're spoiling all of our fun. God, God never does anything to spoil fun. God loves fun, I think. Don't you think? God loves fun. He loves enjoyment. God invented fun. He, enjo- he invented joy and happiness. God wants us to be happy, but... God is concerned with more than just our happiness. You see, I think it's a result of living in a first world country. It's kind of a first world privilege that we think that's what marriage is all about. It's just about our own personal happiness. God is concerned about that, but he's also concerned about people having food to eat and a roof over their head and clothes to wear. And God put these things in place so that people, especially the vulnerable, are protected. So I want to explore this morning why, why Jesus' teachings on marriage are good, are good. You see, if we read Matthew 19 and we kind of roll our eyes and we say, oh, great, a sermon on marriage and divorce, we, we shouldn't roll our eyes about any of Jesus' teachings, should we? It's all good. God's teaching It's good. It's for our good and for his glory. And if he is our king and we've submitted our lives to him, then his rules for our life are good. And we need to explore why they're good and why all of us, regardless of our marital status, because you may be single, never been married, you may be divorced, you may be on your second marriage, you may be widowed, you may be a widower, you may be married, whatever your marital status is. As Christians, we should be a people who proclaim God's word is good. Jesus' teachings are good. And that's what I want to explore and why all of us, as the Hebrew writer says, all of us should honor marriage. So let's look at Part of that law. So God, God took, God took a whole group of slaves. He took a bunch of runaway slaves and organized them into a nation, didn't he? That's what he did in the Old Testament. That's what the Old Testament is all about. How God rescued these slaves, how he rescued the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, and he organized them into a nation, into a kingdom. And he sent them into the promised land. And as they were coming out of Egypt and eventually going into the promised land 40 years later, he he gave them these rules to help them to know how do you treat each other? How do you take care of each other? How do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength? And how do you love your neighbor as yourself? What does that look like? I mean, it's easy to say, love your neighbor as yourself, right? And we say, oh, I do that, right? Do you? What what exactly does that look like? How do you love your neighbor as yourself? What does it look like to love your neighbor? And he gives us the the Ten Commandments, or he gave his people the Ten Commandments. And then he went on to explain in very practical detail what living by those commandments really looks like. What does it look like not to covet what belongs to your neighbor? What does it look like not to lie or bear false witness? Well, what do these things really look like? What does it look like not to steal what belongs to someone else? What does it look like not only not to murder, but not even to want to murder someone else? What does it look like to love your neighbor? So he gives them these laws, and we look at those things. Look at Deuteronomy 23 as an example. Verses 19 and 20, he say things like this. Don't charge your brother's interest on loans. Doesn't that, that's the next slide there. Doesn't that, doesn't that show us that God, God cares about People, 
He says, listen, your, your, your fellow Israelites, they're your family. And so if, if they need something that you have, you, you should loan it to them. You should give it to them and not to take advantage of them or to get interest from them so that you line your own pocket off of their disadvantage, but you should take care of those who have less than you do. And if you have something that they need to borrow for a while, give it to them without charging interest. That's a good law, isn't it? It shows God, God cares about people. Okay, and then an example, next verse, 23, 21 through 23. Do what you vowed to do. Keep your word. If you vow you're going to do something, here's a novel idea, then, then do it, right? Just do what you say you're going to do. I, I like this one, Deuteronomy 23, 24 and 25. He says, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes. I like that, don't you? It's like a buffet, right? You go, go into your neighbor's vineyard and you can eat all the grapes that you want. Why? Because God, God is concerned for the hungry. If someone's in need and, and their fellow Israelite has a, has a field that has a vineyard full of grapes, then he should be able to come in and eat his fill of grapes and have what he needs. But then he says, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. Just like the buffet, right? Don't put any in your bag, right? You're not supposed to do that. Because <laughs> then it's what? It's stealing. Eat all you want. Eat all you need, but don't, don't steal from your brother because those are your brother's grapes. I mean, do you see how there's this beautiful balance where God cares about both the poor who is in need of food and he cares about the landowner there who worked hard to, to plant these grapes. And so he says, listen, if you're hungry, you can come in and you can eat all you need, but don't steal from him because those are his. Don't put it in your bag. He says the same thing about a field of grain. Verse 25, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you can pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Don't, don't start harvesting it. I mean, don't get out your tools and start harvesting it. But if you're hungry, take care of each other. Feed each other. I mean, do you see, do you see how all of these laws, as you go from the beginning of the law to the end of the law, and you look at Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you may not understand them all, and I don't understand them all. We live in a much different time and culture, and we think, well, that's a weird law, right? I mean, why? Why is that law there? Well, you know that no matter what law it is, it was for God's glory and for his people's good that he cared about his people. And he wanted Israel. He wanted Israel to be a light to the nations. He wanted the whole world to be able to look at Israel and say, there's something different about these people and there's something different about their God. They live differently. And the results are different than everywhere else. Now we look at Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1. Now, pay really close attention to verses 1 through 4 and how it how it reads, with the way the grammar reads, okay? He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house. So he's not saying this is what you have to do or even this is what you should do or this is the thing you should be all about or if this happens, here's what you should do. He's just giving a situation. If if this happens, if there's a man and a woman who are married and then he finds some indecency in her, and what does that mean? There was all kinds of debate during the time of Jesus about what does that mean? He found some indecency in her. Does that mean she committed adultery? Does that mean she can't have children? Does that mean she spent too much money? Does that mean she burned the toast? What 
what exactly does that mean? Well, there's all kinds of debate about it. But God wasn't prescribing divorce. He was simply saying, if, if this is the situation, if there's a situation where there's a man and he marries a woman and then he finds some indecency in her and he gives her a certificate of divorce and she departs from his house, verse 2, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife. So all of this is just setting up a situation to say that these kinds of things are happening, probably, and will happen in the future. Not that they should happen, not that this is the way things should be, but this is, this is typical. This is the way things often happen. And there might be a man who marries a woman and then he divorces her and she goes away and then she marries another man and that man divorces her too or maybe that man dies. And here's the law. Here's what it says, verse 4. Then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that's an abomination before the Lord and you should not bring sin upon the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you for an inheritance. So really, that's the law there. That's what's being prohibited is the remarriage of a man to his first wife after she's been the wife of another. You say, well, why that? Why? I, I don't know exactly why, and there's all kinds of debate about why, but this was, this was the law. And as we look through the Bible, one thing is for sure, it's because God was concerned about his glory, but always concerned about people's good. And almost always, he's concerned about the good of the most vulnerable people. So I have a feeling that this law existed for the benefit, especially of the wife, that she wasn't treated as a commodity, that she wasn't swapped around. Maybe, maybe to give the man some hesitation before he sent her away. To say, listen, listen, just so you know, if you divorce this woman and she becomes the wife of another person, even even if that second man dies or even if he divorces her, you can't have her back. She's forbidden for you. You can't have her back. So you need to be very careful before you make this decision. Whatever it was, as I read through the Bible and especially the Old Testament, God is concerned with protecting especially a society and a community's most vulnerable citizens. He goes on to give other laws. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 5. Grooms are exempt from military service for one year after they get married. Why? Because God's concerned about people. God's concerned about the family. Verse 6 of chapter 24. No one should take a millstone as a pledge, as a down payment, as collateral on a loan. Why? Because if you take somebody's millstone, you're taking their livelihood. You're holding their life in your hands. So don't take that as collateral. Verse 7 of chapter 24. The death penalty exists for people who steal someone and force them into slavery. See, as you read through the Old Testament, and I encourage you to do that. Start at Genesis and read through the Torah, the law, and you'll see that God is especially concerned about people like foreigners alien sojourner that's living in Israel. Why? Because they're vulnerable. They didn't have land. They didn't have property. They needed laws to exist to keep them from being taken advantage of. So the Israelites would make sure that they had food to eat, clothes to wear, and a roof over their head. God was concerned about people like the orphan, the fatherless, and the widow. 
God was concerned about women and children and foreigners. And he was concerned about everybody, both the landowner and the homeless man. God was concerned about everyone. Was he concerned about their personal happiness? Sure, absolutely. God wants you to be happy. Yes, God was concerned about their happiness. But so much more than that. God was concerned that they had food to eat and a roof over their head, clothes to wear. God was concerned that people kept their promises to each other, that people didn't abandon their families, that people kept their commitments so that there weren't people living on the streets and living without and living without food to eat or living without a roof over their head or clothes on their back to wear. God was concerned that everybody was taken care of. And in order for a society like that to exist, there has to be some standards, boundaries, and rules, and laws, and this is why it existed. So let's skip forward in time from here. So This, Deuteronomy, was Moses instructing the people right before they went into the promised land. You remember? And then finally, they go into the promised land, they build the kingdom, they build the nation, but they don't obey God's laws. And they they hurt each other, and they don't listen to what God has said, and they forsake God. And because of that, just like Adam and Eve, they're exiled, and they go out of the land. But then eventually, God brings them back, and a trickle of Israelites start to come back, a trickle of Jews start to come back to Israel and Jerusalem and they start to kind of rebuild. But then we get to books like Malachi. And Malachi has to rebuke them and tell them, you you really haven't learned your lesson here. You really haven't learned to take care of each other. You really haven't learned to keep your promises. You really haven't learned to care for the widow and the orphan and the sojourner and the poor and the woman and the child. Look at Malachi chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. God, why don't you listen to me? Why won't you answer my prayers? But you say, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he answer my prayers? And Malachi answers, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Look at verse 15. Oh man, we could spend like a month right here on this verse. Did he not make them one? You and the wife of your youth, didn't he make you one with a, listen to this, with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. You see, marriage is physical and sexual and financial, but it's spiritual. That there is a portion of the spirit given when God, when God joins together a man and a woman of his people then there is a portion of the Spirit given. And what is God seeking? Godly offspring. But Malachi is saying to God's people in this generation, he's saying, your relationship with God is broken because you don't even realize that you are being faithless as opposed to what? Faithful, loyal, committed to the wife of your youth. Now look at the next verse, verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, he covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be 
faithless. Now, I want to read this out of a couple of other translations because there's a phrase that's not in the ESV, but it's in most other translations. The New American Standard says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The New Living Translation says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. The easy-to-read translation says, The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I hate divorce and I hate the cruel things that men do. So protect your spiritual unity. Don't cheat on your wife. Why does God hate divorce? Because he loves faithfulness. Because he hates to see human beings hurt each other emotionally and physically and financially and spiritually. God hates that. And he says, listen, men, Israelite men, Jewish men, my men, my people, you took this woman and you promised yourself to her and you said, I'll love you and I'll take care of you and I'll make sure you have a roof over your head and you have food to eat and I'll love you. And then when you got tired of her, you kicked her out. And he says, you have done violence to her. That was cruel what you did. See, even even under the old covenant, their relationship with God was supposed to work itself out in their relationships with people, and especially the people of their own household. And so do we see that when we get forward, the next book in the Bible, Matthew, so look at Matthew chapter 19, as we go forward to Jesus' day, there was a new set of Jewish people on the scene. A new set of religious people on the scene. And these Pharisees, I mean, they thought they were hot stuff, didn't they? They thought, we got it figured out. We know the rules. We know the law. We know what we're supposed to do. And we're doing it really well. We're patting ourselves on the back because we're godly people. We are God's people. We've got it figured out. We're not like those other people that aren't God's people. We're God's people. We do everything right. And over and over and over and over again, Jesus says to them, but you don't really get it. You're not godly, you're guilty. You're not keeping the law, you're breaking the law. Listen to what they ask him. And they, they, they want to trick him and test him and trap him. And they're, they're debating Deuteronomy 24 that we just read. And they're like, well, what does that mean about if he finds anything that he doesn't like in her? What exactly is that? Or any impurity in her? What is that? Does that mean she's sexually immoral? Some people thought that. And the other side said, no, 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 that's just anything, any cause. And so they asked Jesus about that. And they said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So what, what grounds do I need to have to get rid of my wife? He answered, have you not read? I love that, don't you? I love it when Jesus asked the Pharisees, haven't you read the Bible? I mean, there's people that, I mean, they're religious. They're the, they're the religious elite. Haven't you read the Bible? First book in the Bible, Genesis. You read that one? And of course they read it, right? I mean, they copied it down. I mean, they, they knew it. They probably had it memorized. And he says, have you not read? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He says, you, you don't understand divorce because you haven't really read the Bible. You don't understand divorce because you don't really understand that we're not talking about two people. We're talking about one. We're not talking about two lives. We're not talking about two separate people that can just come and go at will as they please. We're talking about the fact that something spiritual has happened. In that, the God of heaven, not just a piece of paper, not just a ceremony, not just tradition, but the God of heaven has joined these two together. So you ask me, what cause? I say man shouldn't separate what God has joined together. That's his answer. And that ought to be good enough for us too, shouldn't it? This is a spiritual thing. Marriage is a lot of things. But it is a spiritual union where two cease to be two and become one. And for for man to separate that, and man can separate that, but he ought not to. When when he does, when, when someone, whether it's the man or the woman, says, I don't want you anymore. I want this person over here. I don't want to keep my commitments to you. I'm not going to feed you or clothe you or put a roof over your head or love you or be around or be faithful to you anymore. I'm going to go over here. Malachi says that God sees that as doing violence and having your garments covered in violence. So they asked him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Command one? I mean, y'all are, you, you read with me a minute ago in Deuteronomy 24. That's a funny way to read that, isn't it? Command one to divorce her, give her a certificate and send her away. Did, did Moses command them to do that? And Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, (laughs) I know we all have all kinds of questions about this, and all kinds of situations come into our mind, but we've got to get this in our head, that what they were doing is our tendency to do as well. What the Pharisees loved to do was to create loopholes so that they could do what they wanted and condemn someone else, right? So that they could follow their own passions and their own heart and say, I got this little loophole right here so I could do whatever it is that I want to do. And Jesus says to them, you're not godly. You're guilty. You're not keeping the law. You're breaking the law. But here's the truth, church. So am I. So have I. We've, we've all, if we're really listening to Jesus' words, he convicts us all, doesn't he? Jesus convicts us all. And, and this is what we have to realize, that, that they, were, they were kind of bending the word, bending the law so that they could do what they wanted to do. But if they were going to accept Jesus as the Messiah, if we're going to accept Jesus as the Messiah, then we're going to have to allow his words to convict us of our sin. But then he also offers us pardon for the past. And he offers us a better way of life going forward, doesn't he? But we have to be willing to accept his word. We have to be willing, because it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to look at what Jesus is saying in all throughout the scriptures, not just on marriage and divorce, but on all kinds of things. 
For Jesus to say, listen, you think you're great because you haven't killed anybody, but I say to you, if you hate your brother, it's like murdering him. And Wes has to say, I'm guilty. And I need pardon. And I need forgiveness. And I need a better way of life going forward. I can't justify myself and say, well, yeah, but situation and this, that, and the other. I have to be convicted of my sin. The Pharisees weren't willing to be convicted of their sin. So many people in Jesus' day weren't willing to be convicted of their sin. They thought they were law keepers. You remember the the young man that came to Jesus? He says, what else? What else do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, which one? And Jesus gives him a list. He says, I've done all that since my youth. Really? Really? You've done all that since your youth? Really? They were really convinced, really convinced that they weren't guilty. Because they bent it, twisted it. And you and I have a tendency to do the same. But if we're going to be followers of Jesus, as hard as it is, we have to be convicted of our sin. If we're going to accept pardon and a better way of life going forward, we have to ask ourselves this question. Will we bend the word or will we bend our will? Will our will be bent? Will our knees be bent? Will we say... Jesus, I'm wrong. I've been wrong and I've done wrong and I need pardon and I need a better way of life going forward. So here's what we need to do. Three things before we close. We have to accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers for the past. We have to commit ourselves. Number two, we have to commit ourselves to his standards even when we struggle and fail going forward. That's sometimes why people think that we're hypocrites, right? Because we, we hold up these standards and we say, see, this is the way you should live. This is the way I'm living. I've blown it. How about you? In my marriage, in my life, I've blown it. But I, but I can't not hold up the standard of God's word. I can't change it or bend it or twist it or pervert it. I've got to say, this is God's will for us and it's good for us. It's good for us to keep our commitments. It's good for us to be faithful to God to our families. So so we have to be committed to his standards even when we struggle and we fail to live up to them. And then number three, we have to make room for everybody else who's trying to do the same. We all have gaps in our families, don't we? Whether that's because of divorce or death or disagreement, whether that's because of your brokenness or someone else's brokenness, we all have gaps in our families and we have to, as the church, be willing to help fill in those gaps for each other. We have to be there for each other. As we say, this is God's word and God's standard for us, we've got to be committed to the standard, but also committed to each other because our reality is far less than the ideal sometimes, isn't it? We have to be committed to seeking forgiveness, living the life Jesus wants us to live going forward, and committed to loving each other in all of our brokenness. So again, let's struggle with this. Think about this. Meditate on this going forward. Will we bend his word or will we bend our will? Not just as it pertains to marriage and divorce, but everything. When Jesus says, when somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn. Let him slap you on the other cheek. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't just seek your own interests, but also the interests of others. Will you bend his word? Or will you bend your will? Let's be followers 
of Jesus and uphold his word. But maybe there's somebody here this morning and you haven't yet accepted his pardon because his grace is what's going to give you a better life going forward. He died so that you don't have to stay in and with the mistakes you've made, the choices you've made, that he wants to forgive you and wash you and give you a better life. And you haven't, if you haven't accepted that gift, why not do that today and be buried with Jesus in baptism? Or if you just need prayers or encouragement, we're in this together, and we want to help you any way you need us. So come forward as we stand and sing.